Alrighty. Imagine you're in business and you have the opportunity to net the biggest client that your business has ever had. And so you decide that you're going to give this key account that if you can win this for your business, it's going to take your profits and sales to record levels. And you decide that you're going to give that key account to the sales rep that just lost a major client one month ago. Or imagine you were a sports coach of a sports team and you're in this really tight game towards the end of a season that's kind of make or break the entire season and as the match draws to its conclusion and the, the, the score is level and it's almost like whichever play happens next is going to win it and at that moment as the coach you pull off your main playmaker and you put on the player who dropped the ball in the last match to play that key role. Or imagine uh, in a school or a theatre environment, you're in charge of the, the production for the year. And as you cast everyone and decide who's going to play what role, you decide that you will give the lead part in that particular drama, play, for this year. You're going to give it to the child that developed acute stage fright the year before. I mean, take any of those examples you like from business or the arts or sports. That's just not how the world works. You don't give key, important tasks or roles to the people who've blown it. When people prove themselves to be untrustworthy and unreliable, when people get that dreaded word failure mentally tattooed across their forehead or a name badge on their chest, you don't give a failure. Someone who's washed up, someone who, who has drastically got it wrong, you don't give them the important things in life. You may give them a little task to see if they can earn their way back and, and build up some credit in the bank again. But you don't put them on the sports field in the pivotal role. You don't give them the key account in business. You don't put them at centre stage under the spotlight. But that's what God does. And when we talk about being a God being a God of grace, that's part of what we mean. God doesn't operate by the set of rules that our world generally operates on, where you prove yourself, you, you step up, you, you show that you can, can handle it, and, and then God rewards how good you are. Instead, God operates on the principle of grace, which is you may botch it and you may mess it up and you may drop the ball or you may lose the account or you may get stage fright, and yet God in his grace throws you the ball again or gives you a role again and says, try it again. Because that's the kind of God we serve. Today, we're in this little series for a few weeks in the Old Testament book of Jonah, and today we come to Jonah chapter 3. So, really love you to turn to Jonah 3, whether you're here at Botany or at the new uh, group that's meeting in, in Hastings and Harataki and Shona's home, or, or watching or listening to this on the internet. Um, love you to grab uh, uh, Jonah chapter 3. And the big idea of Jonah 3 today, as we kind of kick back into his story is that our gracious God is the God of the second chance. God's the kind of God that, that throws the ball to the, to the kid who dropped it. God's the kind of God who, who gives a key account to the rep who, who, who lost a major client the week before. He's the kind of God who, who puts the spotlight back on a failure. And that's what happens in Jonah. In fact, if this wasn't true, if God was not a God of grace, if God was not the God of the second chance, then Jonah would end in Jonah chapter 2. That would be the end of the story. He saves Jonah, but Jonah's proved himself untrustworthy, so God will never trust Jonah with anything significant again. In fact, it could have ended at the end of chapter 1 with him being thrown overboard. That could have been the end of the story as well. But instead, God, because he's the God of the second chance, not only sends the great fish to save Jonah's life, and as we saw last week, the fish is not a symbol of God's judgment. The fish is a symbol of God's salvation of Jonah. He not only saves Jonah, but now as we're going to see in Jonah chapter 3, he brings Jonah back to the very place of failure, and he throws in the ball. 
and says, Jonah, try again. Because God's the God of the second chance. God is a God who, who brings people back because he is about growing his people and shaping his people for us to become more like him. And that's what happens here in, in this next chapter that we're going to unfold together. And hopefully you would have seen that. If you've been studying Jonah chapter 3 for yourself this week, which has been part of the challenge of this series, for all of us to jump in and look at the passage for ourselves before we come and listen to the message, hopefully you've seen that, that sense of God being the God of the second chance. Now in Jonah chapter 3, um, one of the key study questions that we put into the journal uh, for this little series, the first question to ask of each passage is, is who are the main characters? And in Jonah chapter 3, there's three key characters. There's Yahweh, the God of Israel. There is Jonah, the prophet, who's being given the second chance. And there's the Ninevites, the, the people uh, in the city of Nineveh in, modern, uh, sorry, in ancient Assyria, which was kind of like the Nazi empire of the ancient world. And the, the story of chapter 3 is going to be the interaction of these characters. And so there's kind of three main scenes, the way that I want to break the story up. And in each scene, two of the characters interact. So we're going to start with Yahweh and Jonah, and then it's going to be Jonah and the Ninevites, and then it's going to end with Ninevites and Yahweh again. So it's kind of the who becomes quite important as we watch the interaction between these key characters in the story. So the, the first part of the story in, in Jonah 3 is going to be Yahweh and Jonah. And what happens here is Yahweh commanded Jonah again, and then surprisingly Jonah obeys. So in each of these scenes, one of the characters is going to do something, and then another character is going to respond, and there's going to be a sense of surprise in that. Now, if you've read Jonah or you grew up with the nice cool books of Jonah and the big fish or whatever, then it's not a surprise because you already know the story. But if you were reading this story for the first time and, and the word of God's come to Jonah in chapter 1 and he's taken off and now the word of God comes again as we're about to see in Jonah 3, you're kind of expecting him to take off again, uh, to, 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 to make a run again, to, to, to you know, get the heck out of there again. And he doesn't, surprisingly, he obeys. So if you've got your Bible there, and I left my Bible at the office this week, so I'm going on my phone, so please don't text me during the service, because that would get really weird um, if I keep getting text messages. Now some of you are going to do that, yeah, just because I mentioned that. I, I shouldn't have said a word, and then I would have been all right. Drew. <laughs> Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord, and again, the Lord in capital letters, when Lord's in capital letters in the Old Testament, that's God's name, Yahweh. So then the word of Yahweh came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim, it, uh, proclaim to it the message I give you. And Jonah obeyed the word of Yahweh and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to, to go through it, or that might be traverse it or the entire surrounds as well. We're not entirely sure. But anyway, that's the beginning of the story. So the word of Yahweh comes to Jonah a second time. God commands him again, and then Jonah surprisingly obeys. Now the way this opening to chapter 3 is written, it's meant to echo chapter 1. And so as you read chapter 3, you're meant to have the words of chapter 1 echoing in your mind because they're, they're mirrors of each other. So let me show you that on the screen. So this is verse 1 of Jonah 1 and Jonah 3. The white words are exactly the same. The only change is the yellow words. So Jonah 1 begins, the word of Yahweh came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Chapter 3, it's exactly the same words apart from the last bit at the end. The word of Yahweh came to Jonah a second time. And by writing it that way, and we don't know whether Jonah wrote this book or someone else wrote it about Jonah, we don't know, but whoever wrote it, wrote it in a way that we're meant to see God is taking Jonah back to the beginning, back to the place where he messed up, and he's giving him a second chance. It's kind of like, and even putting that little phrase, instead of saying who his dad was, you know, a second time, what the narrator's doing is, is underlining this key idea. God's the God of the second chance. And God's taking Jonah back to the place of failure for him and saying, try again. I'm giving you grace. I'm pouring grace out on you. Give it another go. 
And often that's what God does. When we run from him and when we disobey him and we, when we mess it up, God will often bring us back to the place we were before we messed it up for us to have another go at it. Jo- uh, God doesn't change the command to Jonah. God does not give Jonah an easier task because he blew that one. So, okay, why don't you just go up the road to that town and, and try preaching there instead? Now, he brings him back, gives him exactly the same command, and says, try again, because God's the God of the second chance. So you read in verse 2, again, exactly the same words. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach, it's the same word, despite the NIV, to it. So the rest of it changes. I should have done the rest of it in yellow, actually. But it's again, it's the same commission. Go and preach to the great city of Nineveh. The subtle change now, though, in verse 2 is back in chapter 1, God had said, go and preach against it. Now in in, in chapter 3, verse 2, it's go and preach to it. And I think there's just a, a little hint there of what's coming, that God is not sending his prophet to go and just condemn the city, but to actually offer it some hope. The big change between these mirror introductory verses in Jonah 1 and 3 is, of course, the response in verse 3. Because in chapter 1, Jonah ran away from Yahweh and headed for Tashish. And in chapter 3, Jonah obeys Yahweh and instead goes to Nineveh. And so what we see here is Yahweh has made his command exactly the same as the beginning of the story in chapter 1, but this time Jonah's response is different. Surprisingly, Jonah obeys. It's the sharp contrast between the two stories. Then we get into the middle, the main part of this particular story, the scene in Jonah chapter 3. So this time it's moving around the triangle. This is now Jonah and the Ninevites. Yahweh's not so much part of the picture in verses 4 and 9. And Jonah preaches. He does what he's been commanded to do. And then again, surprisingly, the Ninevites respond to his preaching. So the preaching is, is given to us in verse 4. Have a look if you've got your Bible there, either paper Bible or phone like me or whatever uh, you're doing. But verse 4 reads, Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. There's a lot of debate over the message that he preaches here. In, in our English Bibles, it's a, I think it's eight words, at least it is in the NIV, in the Hebrew text, it's even shorter. It's only five words. And there's debate. Is that the summary of what Jonah said? Or is that the totality of what Jonah said? In other words, did Jonah preach a, you know, a, a long message and that's kind of been summarized down for us in that one sentence? That's what a number of people think. That, and often that happens in the Bible. People preach and they'll record just a summary of what, the key idea of the, what the person was saying. Or there are others, though, who say that's all he preached. He just went and stood on a corner and said, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. (laughs) 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And that was it. He just walked around from corner to corner yelling eight words or five words or or I don't even know what language he's spoken. And that's all it was. And and there's debate over, is this a summary Or is this just like the total eight words that he said and and that was it? We don't know. Um, But either way, what it shows us is that Jonah, I think, is still a very reluctant prophet. He's obeyed God, so tick. But it's kind of like his heart isn't in it. And whether it's a summary or whether it's the total message that he did, just these eight words, it's like he's rocking up to Nineveh and he's proclaiming on them the judgment of God without saying anything about hope, anything about what response they should make. He doesn't say anything about the fact that they need to repent and and God may well respond to that. There's none of that. If this is a summary, the summary is, you guys are dead meat. If this is the totality of his message, it's the same idea, you're dead meat. There's no hope, there's no grace, there's no offer of forgiveness. It's pure judgment. And it's kind of like, I think we need to see Jonah now obeying God, but obeying God reluctantly. And he's going and he's giving them the message and that's all he's going to give them. 
idea. In fact, it's quite brutal. The Assyrians wouldn't have known the brutality of this, the way this is written, but it's been beautifully written because this book is aimed at a Jewish audience, for Jewish people to, to read the story because Jonah's meant to be a mirror on their lives and on our lives. And for Jewish people, when they read this and they read the words, Nineveh will be overthrown, that's a really strong word. Because that word actually comes from very early in the, in the Old Testament scriptures that they had um, a, a good chunk of the scriptures by this point. And in the Old Testament book of Genesis, this becomes the key word in one of the most horrific stories of judgment in the whole Bible. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And the Old Testament scriptures that these people would have had at the time now says that Yahweh rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah. That Yahweh poured out from the heavens and he overthrew these cities. That's the word. And so Jewish people reading the book of Jonah would have recognized that word. What Yahweh is threatening to do to Nineveh is what Yahweh did to Sodom and Gomorrah. And that's what Jonah went around and preached. The utter destruction of this place. And so you get this picture, I think, and I don't know whether this is a summary of the message or the whole message. I don't know. But I get this picture of Jonah walking around Nineveh, telling them that judgment's coming, that they've got 40 more days and they are toast. God's going to treat them like Sodom and Gomorrah. But he doesn't say anything else. And I think there's this picture of this reluctant prophet who outwardly is obeying God, but inwardly is still going, no, I, I'm not going to let them know that there's hope. I'm not going to let them know for this forgiveness. I'm just going to tell them they're dead meat. And that's the message. And almost in spite of himself, God moves in the hearts of the people. Because that's what happens in the rest of this little section. Look at, look at verses 5 to 9. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Verse 5. The Ninevites believed God. The Ninevites believed God. They see past Jonah, they see there's one true God, and they believe his message. And then look at what they do. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them. If you're reading this text in your journal, grab a pen and underline those three words. All of them, all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. That's the entire city. Verse 6, when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. And this is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Don't let your sheep or your cows or your dogs or whatever Eat or drink. Let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. I love that last line from the king. Who knows? Maybe God might be compassionate. Maybe God might hear. Maybe God might turn. He had no idea whether this would move this God of, of this prophet or not. Because Jonah, I don't think, was telling him. But God was moved by that, as we're going to find out in the last verse. 150 years after Jonah, another prophet came along by the name of Jeremiah. And he would write these words, if at any time... I, God, announce that a national kingdom is to be uprooted, torn down, and destroyed. And if that nation I warned repents of its evil, then God says, I will relent, and I will not inflict on it the disaster I had planned. That's exactly what we see going on in Jonah 3. So even though Jonah doesn't let them know that there is hope, that if they repent... That, that God may be compassionate and gracious and forgiving, they, they re repent anyway. 
They choose to believe anyway. Even though Jonah hasn't given them any reason to do that, they still do that in the hope that maybe that's what God will be like. So Jonah preaches very reluctantly, I think, very judgmentally. But he preached. And surprisingly in the story, the Ninevites responded. And they didn't just respond. Notice those words in verse 5. All of them, from the greatest to the least, the entire city, which in chapter 4 we're going to hear, is more than 120,000 people. Every single one of them, repent. It's the biggest revival in the history of the world. We've just mourned in the last few weeks the death of Billy Graham the most successful evangelist that's ever lived in terms of how many people he's preached to. He preached, I can't even remember what the figure was, it was in the hundreds of millions have heard Billy Graham preach. And, and, and millions, and I don't know the numbers, came to faith in Jesus through Billy Graham. And we would say, you know, was he the greatest preacher or greatest evangelist ever? Well, it depends on how you measure that. But he'd never got the percentage conversion rate that Jonah got. Because Jonah got 100%. I would love that as a preacher. Not saying anything against you, but... Man, he's walking around, almost muttering, you know, 40 more days and you guys are toast. And every single person, the whole population, believes and responds. They're all fasting. They're all in sackcloth. And it's almost in spite of Jonah's reluctance and in spite of Jonah's judgmental attitude and lack of grace and explaining to the people how they can respond and get right with God, they respond and get right with God anyway. And it's this miraculous moment when God does this massive work in them and they they come to faith. I think there's genuine conversion that happens to an entire generation of Nazis in the ancient world. And I think it's genuine for three reasons. Number one, verse five is really, really key. Jonah's preaching, and then verse five begins, in our English Bibles, it's four words. Let me scroll back to it on my phone. Verse five, the Ninevites believed God. Really simple sentence. Nothing to it. But again, there's echoes of Genesis in this. Echoes of possibly one of the most famous verses of the entire Old Testament. From Genesis 15:6, Abram, which is Abraham, but it's his former name, Abram believed Yahweh, and he credited it to him as righteousness. This is one of the most important verses about faith in the entire Bible. Paul will pick this verse up and use it in the New Testament to explain we don't get right with God by trying our hardest or doing our best efforts or trying to work our way back to God to make up for the mess of our lives. No, we come simply by faith. We just choose to trust in Jesus and God takes that faith in Jesus and credits it to us as righteousness. And Paul will go back and argue argue that on the basis of this verse in Genesis about Abraham. And there's a deliberate echo in Jonah here of this verse. Abraham believed Yahweh. The Ninevites believed God. Full stop. And I think the first reason we're meant to see this as a genuine conversion, these people really genuinely came to faith, is because I think it's written in a way to draw a direct comparison. This is the way Abraham responded, and Abraham was a pagan as well before God called him. And this is how the Ninevites, they believed just like Abraham. They had faith just like Abraham. Secondly, the second reason I think this is genuine is because of the way they then responded with all the sackcloth and ashes and fasting, that was very Israelite um, forms of repentance. This is the way that God's people historically responded to him when they were repenting. So you get into the uh, other parts of the prophets, Joel, for example, who says, put on sackcloth, you priests, and mourn. Wail those who minister before the altar. Come spend the night in sackcloth. Declare a holy fast. See, this is how Jewish people would show God that they were genuinely repentant. 
they'd put on sackcloth, they'd sit in ashes, they would fast, and that was an expression um, of their mourning of, over their sin before God. And that's exactly what you see the people of Nineveh doing. They don't do it because Jonah tells them to. They just do it because that's what feels right in response to God. But I think it's there to show us the genuineness of what they do. In fact, I love the way that the, the actions of the king are described in particular in verse 6. It says four things, four verbs. He arose from his throne, he took off his royal robes, he covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat down in the dust. So the first and the fourth one is what he does. He gets up from sitting on the throne, and he sits down in, in the dust. And the middle two are about his clothing. He takes off his robes, and he puts on sackcloth to show that the king himself is, is, has repented. There is a deep humility and mourning in him. And I think that's the, third, the second sign we see, that this is genuine. They, they believe. They've got the same faith, same response as Abraham. And then secondly, their actions of sackcloth and fasting is very Israelite. In fact, I think there's a lot of commonality here, again, between chapters 1 and 3. What's going on is these two chapters mirror each other. God commands Jonah. The difference is chapter 1, Jonah runs. Chapter 3, Jonah obeys. But then you come down, and both places, Jonah ends up proclaiming the message of Yahweh to pagans. In chapter 1, it's to the sailors on the boat. In chapter 3, it's to the people of Nineveh. And in both situations, the pagans believe. They respond. And the sailors in chapter 1 show their belief by picking up Israelite signs of worship, which is sacrifice and vows. In chapter 3, the Ninevites show by using Jewish um, expressions of repentance, uh, sackcloth and fasting. And so there's these mirror things. The pagans in Jonah are coming to faith in Yahweh and showing their faith and repentance in Yahweh despite what Jonah's doing. And they're coming to faith left, right and centre through Jonah, but in spite of Jonah. The third reason I think this is a genuine conversion is because of what happens in verse 10, which finishes the story. And that's the way that Yahweh responds. So what we've seen is, is the first section of this is, is Yahweh and Jonah, where Yahweh uh, commanded again, and Jonah surprisingly obeys. And in the middle section of this story is Jonah and the Ninevites, and Jonah preaches, and the Ninevites surprisingly respond. The Jewish audience would have been very surprised that, that they did because they were Nazis, but they responded. And then in verse 10, the last part of the story is now the Ninevites and Yahweh. And the Ninevites have now repented. And surprisingly, we're going to see in verse 10, Yahweh relents and doesn't send the punishment that Jonah had been proclaiming. You got it there? Look at verse 10. When God saw what they did, and how they had turned from their evil ways. He relented, and he did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. Some years later, this same God would say these words through another prophet, Isaiah. Seek Yahweh while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake their ways. Let the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to Yahweh, and he will have mercy on them. To our God, for he will freely pardon. Because that's what God is like. He's the God of grace. He's the God of second chance. He's the God who sends prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Jonah and Joel to warn people that judgment will come if they don't repent and believe. But God says, but when people do turn, when people do believe, when people do genuinely sorry for their sin and turn to God, then God has mercy. God responds. God relents because that's the kind of God he is. He's the God of the second chance. He's the God of the second chance, not just for wayward prophets. He's also the God of the second chance for wicked Nazis who turn to him in faith. The Ninevites repented, and surprisingly, Yahweh relented. Now, through the years, there's been um, a lot of debate around God's actions here in verse 10. Uh, in, in the original text, it actually doesn't say that God relents. It actually says God repents. 
So the people repented and God repented. It uses the same word. And our English translations change it, and I think it's probably a helpful change, to be honest. They change it because we have the idea of repentance being about sin or evil, and of course God, as a holy God, doesn't commit sin. He has no evil. But the idea of repentance at its core is simply to change the mind. And so because the people of Nineveh changed their mind about their wicked ways, God now changes his mind about his holy judgment. But that still caused debate and angst for people through the centuries, and it's caused it for a couple of key reasons, two, two key reasons in particular. The first key reason is that some people have trouble over God relenting here because it seems to undermine the idea that God is unchangeable. In the Bible, it talks about the fact that God doesn't change, that God isn't fickle going back and forth, that God doesn't change his mind. And yet it feels like in the story, that's exactly what God does. God changes his mind. He sent his prophet to go to go preach against the city and proclaim 40 more days, and this is going to look like Sodom and Gomorrah. And then because they repent, it looks like God just changes his mind. But when we talk about God being unchanging, the, the word is actually immutable, what we mean by that is that God is unchanging in his character and who he is and his promises. It doesn't mean God is not responsive to changes in people. But that's the key thing. What we meant to see in the story is not that God has changed. The people of Nineveh have changed. And now God can relate to them in a different way because they've genuinely repented. See, this is a different city of Nineveh. The city of Nineveh that Jonah walked into was a city full of Nazis who skinned people alive and invented horrible tortures against the people they conquered. The Nineveh that God forgave was a completely different city. Same people, but people whose hearts had been broken over their wickedness and who'd come to realize that what they were doing was wrong and who'd come to believe in the one true God. And it's not that God changed his mind. It's now that this God who always judges sin because he's holy is also the God who gives grace and forgiveness to sinners who don't deserve it but who repent and believe it's not that God changes, it's that the people changed. And so his response to them can be different. The second issue that people have around this fact that God relents is not only that that's a challenge to God's unchangingness, but secondly, that's a, that's a real challenge to God's justice. Now, we don't think that. When we read a story like this, we think, what a cool story. Isn't it awesome? The whole city believes and comes to faith and repents. We think it's beautiful, and, and we read that God relented and forgives them and doesn't send judgment, and we think that's wonderful. That's how it should be. But for the Jewish audience of Jonah reading this story for the first time, this would have been shocking. Because if you were a Jew reading the book of Jonah when it was first written, your granddad might have been killed by these Assyrian conquerors. It might have been your uncle who'd served in the army and got captured and got skinned alive by these Ninevites. It might have been your home that was destroyed. It might have been your village or town that had been obliterated. And when Jewish people read this, their question would not have been, what about God's unchangingness? Their question would have been, what about God's justice? Where's the justice for this? They come and obliterate our village and kill our people and, and, and cart off our relatives into captivity. They take our soldiers and skin them alive and do incredibly barbaric things that we would now call war crimes. And then because, because they, they put on sackcloth and they fast for a while and they stick some sackcloth on their cow, God relents. God says, that's okay. I'm not going to judge you anymore. And for the ancient people reading this ancient book when it was first written, the big question was not, wait a minute, I thought God never changed. The big question was, wait a minute, I thought God was just. I thought God would defend us. I thought God would take up our cause as his people. Where is the justice of God? And the answer to that is incredibly profound. The justice of God 
is found about 700 years later on a Roman cross outside of Jerusalem. Because the God who relents 700 years later will become a human being and be laid in a manger. And 30 or so years after that, will allow himself to be beaten and tortured, just like the Assyrians did, and then nailed to a cross. And more than the physical agony of what he would endure, the Father would pour out on him the wrath that the Father has as a holy God on all sin. And the reason that God could justly forgive these Ninevites is not that God didn't care about justice. It's that he he paid the penalty for these Ninevites at the cross 700 years later. And he could forgive knowing that the penalty would be paid and justice would be done. Just like it is for you and I. When we trust in Jesus, the just and right penalty for all of our sin and failure and rebellion is also paid for at that same cross where we stand right alongside wicked Nazi Ninevites who chose to repent and believe. Paul would write in the New Testament, God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God doesn't change his mind. Nineveh changed. God was dealing with a different city and could therefore give them grace and forgiveness. And God was not ceasing to be just. God simply took the righteous judgment that Nineveh deserved and held on to it for another 700 years before pouring that out on Jesus on the cross. Our gracious God is the God of the second chance. He's the God of the second chance for Jonah. A prophet who runs and who God brings right back to the starting point again, brings him back round the Monopoly board, back to go, gives him another 200, says let's start the game again. But he's also the God of the second chance for a wicked city of Ninevites who don't deserve grace but because they choose to believe like Father Abraham, God brings them round the board and lets them start again. And it's exactly what he's done for you and I if we're followers of Jesus. Because he's the God of the second chance. Before we leave this story, I want to step back from it for a moment and think about our whole theme this year. Love right where you are. We want this year for our church to become a year where we raise the evangelistic temperature, where we get more earnest and and more deliberate about taking the message of Jesus and sharing it with the people around us who don't know him yet. And I think this story in particular, this part of Jonah, has got some really helpful comments to make for us, some key reminders for us about us sharing our faith with those who don't know God at this point. This is the most remarkable story, I think, of conversion in the whole Bible. The city of Nineveh was about the size of Howick Botany. Just slightly smaller than Napier and Hastings combined. And everyone believed. The whole city. And Jonah didn't even want them to. And I want to make a few observations about us sharing our faith. Observation number one. God changes human hearts, not us. This is a story of God working deeply in human hearts. This is not down to Jonah. This is not Jonah's ability. This is not Jonah's eloquence. This is not Jonah's power. This is God touching the hearts of people and drawing them to him. And it's a very good reminder to us that I think in many ways takes the pressure off. It's not, it's not up to you. It's not like it's all on you that you've got to get it right, you've got to say the right words, you've got to have all the answers. Because if you don't, you, know, you could completely... No, no, God's the one who changes people's heart. We, we can't do it. All we do is share the message. That's what Jonah did. 
Jonah simply shared the message. Nothing more. Believe me, nothing more. Jonah shared the bare minimum of the message. Jonah did it, I think, in the most boring way possible. No eloquence. Jonah shared the minimum amount he could of judgment. Nothing else. No grace. No hope. No forgiveness. Just judgment. So he shared the bare minimum he could. And God used it. Thirdly, by the way, Jonah didn't have all the answers. I think one of the biggest reasons we, we, we wuss out of just speaking into situations and just talking a little bit about our faith is because we, we're scared that we don't have all the answers. What if they ask a question that I can't answer? You know what? Jonah couldn't answer all the questions either. Imagine the Ninevites lining up. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Uh, excuse me, Mr. Jonah. Um, is there any escape from this judgment? Actually, God hadn't told him. By the looks of it, he's like, I don't know. Well, what do we need to do? I don't know. Can you prove Yahweh is really real? No. He didn't have the answers. He just shared what he knew. And God took that and made the changes in people's lives. Our job is to pray and to share and leave the results to God. Our job is to pray and to share and leave the results to God. Bill Bright was the founder of Campus Crusade Ministries, which became Student Life in New Zealand. It's now called Tandem, and other ministries like Family Life came out of that. And Bill Bright once coined a definition that I'm going to quote loosely rather than perfectly. But when he was asked once, what is evangelism? You know, what's the definition? And he said, it's simply sharing the message of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit and leaving the results to God. And Jonah, I think, is a brilliant example that this is exactly what it is. It's all we have to do. Pray like crazy. Tell people about Jesus. A lot, maybe only a little, depending on the conversation. And then just let God work. I want to zero in on that first part of that, actually. Pray. Because one, part, one thing that we can do, as well as sharing the message, is to pray for people, those in our circle. And I was thinking about this, that this week, and then I came across um, one of the authors I've been reading as a pastor in America called J.D. Greer, who had a, this brilliant quote a few weeks ago about, you know, if you want to run, there'll always be a boat to Tarshish. Remember that? That was J.D. Greer. Well, J.D. Greer did another one that I want to give you, but this is not quite as fun as the last quote. You ready? Take a deep breath. You need it. Here we go. God answered right now in one fell swoop every prayer you prayed last week. Would anyone you be in the kingdom? Just, just let that sit for a minute. Think through your prayer life over the last week. God had said yes to everything you prayed. Like that scene in Bruce Almighty where Bruce has been given that power to be God over Buffalo and he says yes to every prayer and three million people win the lottery. If God had said yes to every one of your prayers last week, how many people would now be Christians? I think part of raising the evangelistic temperature in our church this year is raising our fervent prayer for our friends and our work colleagues and our workmates and our families who don't know Jesus yet. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to just pause it here for a minute and I'm going to leave J.D. Greer uncomfortably staring at all of us. And Dave and Leo are now just going to come up the, the outside aisles. Yep, come boys. Well done. Nice. And um, we've just designed a, a simple little prayer card. And all it's got is three white spaces for you to write the names of three key people in your life or families or even locations if you want to pray for work. I, I want to invite you to think for a minute. Who can I be praying for more deliberately than maybe I ever have before? Because at the end of the day, we don't change people. 
God changes people. So we should be desperately crying out for the people that we love and care about. And I would love to think that starting now, a key way that the evangelistic temperature of our church changes and rises is because we as a church family begin praying like we haven't never prayed before for our lost friends and family. So once you've got that card in front of you, just want you to take a minute and grab a pen. And if you don't have a pen, then just look along the aisle. Someone will. And so just when they've finished writing theirs, and don't steal theirs, but when they've finished writing theirs, just ask if you can borrow their pen. I just want to give you a moment to fill that in. And I'm going to invite you to take that prayer card home and put it somewhere significant for you. On the mirror in your ensuite, on the dashboard of your car, on the fridge, where hopefully those three people won't come in and see it, but that could start a conversation as well. But who do you want to pray for? Just, just take a moment and fill that in, and then we'll finish up. My hope and prayer is that starting today, you'll start praying regularly for the people on that card. If you're in a community group, I'd love to invite you to bring that to group, because we're going to invite our community groups to start praying for one another's cards and make this a, a, a group kind of expedition. If you're not in a community group, I'd love you to join one and, and join with other people to begin praying together. So that if next week, God answered in one fell swoop all of our prayers. We'd see hundreds of people coming to faith in him. He doesn't operate exactly like Bruce Almighty. Trust me. But wouldn't that be amazing? Because that's who God is, though. He's this God of grace. He's the God of the second chance. And that's what he wants to do in us and through us to those who don't yet know him. I want to finish this morning three reflections. I am Jonah, which is the saying, as we've been talking about, that the people in the Jewish synagogue say in unison together at the end of the reading of the book of Jonah each year on Yom Kippur. Three reflections from Jonah chapter 3. Number one, I am Jonah when I share God's message and leave the results to him. I'm not sure Jonah approached it quite like that. I don't think Jonah was hoping that God would do what he does. We'll see that next week. I think Jonah was just doing what he had to do, and yet we see God just working amazingly through him. But I am like Jonah when I share the message, hopefully more excitedly than Jonah, with less reluctance, but just trust him with it, rather than taking all of the pressure on me. More negatively though, secondly, I am Jonah when I do what God has commanded, but my heart isn't in it. Is that ever true of you? You obey, you, you know that this is right or this is wrong, and so you do what's right, you do what God the Bible commands. And you kind of do it reluctantly. It described my walk with God for many years. I'd read the Bible and I'd pray, but my heart really wasn't in it. And I think there were oftentimes God would be like, really? Why bother? Because I think God isn't just after our outward obedience. God wants to capture our hearts and for us to walk with him out of a deep faith and love for him. Third reflection, though. I am Jonah whenever I grasp a second chance that God gives. Whenever I fail, 
whenever I blow it and come back to him again because he's a God of forgiveness, because he has placed all of our sin and brokenness, everything we've done wrong has been paid for by Jesus. It means we can come back whenever we've blown it. God is the God of the second chance. In the New Testament, the Apostle Peter came to Jesus once and said, Lord, how many times do I need to forgive my brother? And thinking, knowing that Jesus was all about grace, Peter says, like 70 times 7, thinking like a really big number. No, 7 times he said, and Jesus came back and said, no, 70 times 7. See, God isn't just the God of the second chance. He's the God of the third chance and the fourth chance and the seventh chance and the 70th chance and the 70th times seven. And ultimately, that's where hope is for you and me. Because even when we've been saved by him, we're still rebels and we still run and we're still broken and we can keep coming back because our gracious God is the God of the second and the third and the fourth and the fifth and the seventh and the 70th and the 490th and the 1,000th chance to come back. And he was that for Jonah, and he was that for every person in Nineveh, and he's that for you and I, and he can be that for our friends. God, we want to say thank you today that that's who you are. At the core of your being, you're the God of the second chance. You're the God of grace who, as your word says, doesn't treat us as our sins deserve, but when we turn to you like the Ninevites, when we believe your message and repent of our sin, Lord, you take our sins away as far as the east is from the west because you have poured them all onto Jesus. Thank you that if we have trusted in Jesus, we are forever loved and forever forgiven because you are the God of the second chance. God, if there are people here today listening to this or watching this online or whatever who don't know you, I pray that they would follow in the footsteps of the Ninevites, that they would acknowledge and repent of their sin and they would just simply believe and trust in Jesus. And I pray that for all of the names written on these prayer cards this morning. God, we want to hound you now and pray for these people. Pray that you would draw them to you. Pray that you would be the God of the second chance to them. And so we lift them to you today. And thank you for being the God of grace in your name. Amen. Let's stand. We're going to just spend.